Well, shout out to all you mamas out there. Your work, your importance, your influence is so, so vitally important. I'm sorry we can't celebrate the way we normally would, but we want you to know that we are thankful for you and just honor motherhood. I'm typically reading a few books at a time, and two of the books I'm currently reading uh, show the importance of mom. So one is a book about Augustine. Augustine was a fourth century uh, theologian who was converted late, and he had a mom named Monica, and Monica was extremely influential in Augustine's life, most notably, though, for her prayers for him. He was converted a little bit later in life, uh, not as a child, but she would pray and pray and pray and share the gospel. And then even after his conversion, she continued to be extremely influential. So never, ever underestimate the power of a praying mother. And then another book the staff's actually reading together is called Christianity and Liberalism. And it's by a theologian from the early 20th century named J. Gresson Machen. And he too was extremely influenced by his mom. In fact, this book, which was in many ways his most influential book, there the very front pages, To My Mother. And so moms, happy Mother's Day. The hand that rocks the cradle rules the world. Thank you for all that you do. Well, meet me in Romans chapter 12. Once again, where we're looking at a vision for the community of Christ, the church. And Romans 12 has been showing us what it means to live life together. And this week, it's going to teach us how to live with non-Christians as well. Last couple of weeks, we've seen how we've seen Romans 12 give us 12 different marks of the church. Let me rehash those for us. They are genuine love, a hatred of evil, loving the good, brotherly love, a culture of honor, zeal for God's glory, service, joyful hope, patience and tribulation, prayer, generosity, and hospitality. And this morning, we're going to see two main points from Romans 12, 14 to 21. Number one, love your enemy. Number two, love each other. So let's read together Romans chapter 12, verses 14 to 21. Romans 12, 14, bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Let's pray together. Father, we do ask that you would give us receptive hearts. This is a strong word, another challenging word, Lord. It's easy to understand, but it's very hard to apply. It goes against our fallen nature. And so we ask for your help this morning as we consider what it means to be a people of love. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen. So number one, love your enemy. How so? Well, he actually gives us a couple of ways there. He says, by blessing them and by never avenging yourself. 
So first, bless your enemies. He shifts from our posture towards one another, towards the church now, to our posture towards unbelievers. But really, we're still under the heading of Romans 12, verse 9, and that is, let love be genuine, sincere love. And how we do that is we bless those who persecute you. And here at the time of the writing of Romans, there wasn't that strong Neronian persecution just yet. There was persecution, but it wasn't what we typically think of. But social pressure was rising. It was becoming increasingly hard to be a Christian. And just a few years later, it became extremely hard. But here, we just saw social pressure, and it's just becoming more and more difficult. Not that unlike where we are today. Increasingly, it will become harder to be a Bible-believing Christian, to hold to things that the Christian church has held for its whole history. And when people go after you and go after your faith, God says, bless them. Our fallen inclination is to do just the opposite, isn't it? What's the opposite? It's to curse. But he says, bless and do not curse. And he repeats himself several times. The main point here, look at verse 14. He says, bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Skip down to verse 17. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. And then look down at verse 21. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. It's the same basic point. We are to love our enemies. And of course, King Jesus taught the very same thing in the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew chapter 5, verse 43. You've heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven. For he makes his son rise on the evil and the good, and he sends rain on the just and the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? We're to bless our persecutors. Love our enemies. How counterintuitive is this? How counter Texan is this? But it's actually all over the Bible. Listen to 1 Thessalonians 5.15. See that no one repays anyone evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. 1 Peter 3, 8 and 9, finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless for to this you were called that you may obtain a blessing. Christians do not curse their enemies. Christians love their enemies. We do what is honorable in the sight of all. Good deeds that even non-Christians recognize. That's what he's getting at there in verse 20. Feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. And by doing so, you'll heap burning coals on his head. So meet the needs of your enemies. Provide for your persecutors. This meaning of heaping coals on the head, this imagery, the meaning of the image is actually pretty unclear. What we know clearly is that it's not talking about revenge. That would contradict the verses before it and the verses after it. It's probably an image of shame and remorse that would hopefully then lead to repentance. So as we do good to our enemies, they're led to feel ashamed of their wrong conduct. So we are to provide for them with a goal of seeing them changed. It was Abe Lincoln that said the best way to destroy an enemy is to make him a friend. So we love our enemies. It's such a challenging call. How? How is it possible for us to love our enemies? Well, through the gospel. By looking to Jesus. Listen to 1 Peter chapter 2. For to this you have been called, 
Because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. This is the way of Jesus. We look to him. This is how we can do it. He is our model. Just think of his dying breath. Think of him dying on the cross. How does he treat those that are crucifying? How does he treat his enemies? He prays for them. He blesses them. Father, forgive them for they know not what they're doing. Then we have a, another example in the book of Acts chapter 7 where Stephen is about to be martyred. And what does he say about those that are taking his life? Lord, do not hold this sin against them. He blesses those that are persecuting. The gospel empowers and enables enemy love. We can bless and not curse because of the gospel by looking to Jesus, but also by remembering God's patience with us. We were his enemies. In fact, if you're in Romans, just flip back a couple of pages to Romans chapter 5. Verse 8. God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Or look at verse 10. If while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. As God has been to us, so we will be to others. We've seen this enemy love exemplified beautifully in a couple ways in recent years in the African-American community. Just think about Charleston, right? You remember that? Five years ago, a white supremacist enters a black church and shoots the place up, Emmanuel AME. Nine died and survivors immediately forgave the shooter. Maybe you saw that court scene. Just two days later, they told him, I forgive you. May God have mercy on you. Or a little bit more recently when Botham Jean was murdered in his own apartment. Maybe you saw his brother looking Officer Geiger in the eye and says, I forgive you and God will forgive you. And he tells him, I don't even want you to go to jail. I want the best for you. And what's best for you is that you would give your life to Christ. See, we can love our enemies because God's loved us when we were his enemies. So first, we love our enemies by blessing and not cursing. And we can also love our enemies by never avenging ourselves. He says that in Romans chapter 12, verse 19. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. So we can love an enemy by never avenging ourselves. Revenge is just not an option for us. But the world loves revenge, doesn't it? We call it sweet, sweet revenge. And of course, all of our favorite movies are centered on revenge, whether it's Gladiator or Equalizer 1 or Equalizer 2, where Denzel just goes around taking matters into his own hand, killing all kinds of people that do wrong. Or I hear that a Southside favorite, my name is Inigo Montoya. You killed my father. Prepare to die. Or how about this one? If you're looking for a ransom, I can tell you I don't have money. But what I do have are a very particular set of skills, skills I have acquired over a very long career, skills that make me a nightmare for people like you. 
if you let my daughter go now, that'll be the end of it. <laughs> or Count of Monte Cristo, one of my favorites. Edmund Dantes stabs Fernand after taking his girl. And Fernand, what happened to your mercy? And the Count says, I'm a Count, not a saint. Drops the mic. See, we love some revenge. And it's not just us. It's always been that way. Aristotle said to take vengeance on one's enemies is nobler than to come to terms with them. For to retaliate is just. And that which is just is noble. And further, a courageous man ought not to allow himself to be beaten. So it's the norm. The world loves it. The world thinks it's right. But what does Jesus say? Again, right in that same section, the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5. Verse 38, the king of the world says this, you've heard it said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. What a challenging call. And again, how can we do this? How can we not avenge and get revenge? Well, he actually told us there in Romans 12, 19. Let me read it again. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but here we go. Leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. Leave it to the wrath of God. You don't avenge yourself because God's going to do that. He's the judge. We are not. The judge's chair is much too big for us. It's not our job to exact justice. He's going to do that. He says he will repay. He will punish. God is telling his church, you don't repay, I will repay. You don't worry about getting revenge. God is going to right all wrongs. In fact, this, this truth of judgment is the basis of our ability not to avenge ourselves. You see, if there were no final judgment, injustice would reign. Miroslav Volf, he's this Croatian Christian theologian, and he had witnessed terrible, terrible, terrible atrocities in the Balkans. And listen to what he writes. He says, the certainty of God's judgment at the end of history is the presupposition for the renunciation of violence. The divine system of judgment is not to flip, is not the flip side of the human reign of terror, but a necessary correlate to human nonviolence. Again, we don't get wrathful. We leave that to God. He's going to take care of injustices. Immediately, oftentimes, in the governing authorities that we'll see next week. In fact, look at the parallel verse there in Romans chapter 13, verse 4. Speaking of the governing authorities, he is God's servant. The word is deacon there. For your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid. For he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is a servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. So, Sometimes justice happens here in the immediate context through the governing authorities that are God's servant, but that doesn't always happen. Ultimately, though, on the day of judgment here in Romans 12, 19, we see all wrongs will be made right. Talks about final judgment. In the doctrine of divine judgment, it's, it's, it's avoided. It's rarely mentioned today because it's hard. It's hard and it flies in the face of all things American in the 21st century. But here we need to realize our cultural situatedness. 
when people have a problem with hell, it shows the air they're breathing. And we ought to ask, well, why don't you have a problem with mercy? Or why don't you have a problem with forgiveness? Well, we have issues with hell partly because it, it goes against our 21st century Western sensibilities. But it's important to know that most of the worlds will not worship a God who's not just, who will not ultimately make things right, who will not ultimately judge evil. Again, listen to Wolf. This is long and wordy, but I think it's right on point. And it's really a problem for those who do not believe in judgment or don't believe in a God. He says, if God were not angry at injustice and deception. And again, some of us haven't seen real suffering like Wolf has or so much else of the world. If God were not angry at injustice and deception and did not make a final end to violence, that God would not be worthy of worship. The only means of prohibiting all recourse to violence by ourselves is to insist that violence is legitimate only when it comes from God. My thesis that the practice of nonviolence requires belief in divine vengeance, vengeance will be unpopular with many in the West. But it takes the quiet of a suburban home for the birth of the thesis that human nonviolence corresponds to God's refusal to judge. In a scorched land, soaked in the blood of the innocents, it will invariably die. And as one watches it die, one will do well to reflect about many other pleasant captivities of the liberal minds. When there's deep suffering and deep, deep injustice, we must have a God who will judge the wicked. And scripture is very, very clear about it. I mean, you really can't read one, any book of the, every book of the Bible mentions judgment. Let me just mention a couple verses. One is Psalm 21, verse 8. Your hand will find out all your enemies. Your right hand will find out those who hate you. You will make them a blazing oven when you appear. The Lord will swallow them up in his wrath and fire will consume them. You will destroy their descendants from the earth and their offspring from among the children of man. Though they plan evil against you, though they devise mischief, they will not succeed for you will put them to flight. You will aim their fa- at their faces with your bows. God will judge his enemies. Second Thessalonians 1, which is a similar context of Romans 12, the church is being persecuted. Notice the language, Second Thessalonians 1, 6. Indeed, God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you. And to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us. When the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus, they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. When he comes on that day, to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed because our testimony to you was believed. God will judge, partly because God cares about his world. He will not let injustice reign. Justice will prevail, right? Martin Luther King popularized the quote, the arc of history is long, but it bends toward justice. So Paul says, never avenge yourselves. This is how Christians can bear under injustice, even when the governing authorities are unjust, which in the history of mankind, they have so often been. You know, just this week, we saw the release of a video 
Apparently the murder happened in, in February, but Ahmaud Arbery was running. Looked like a scene from the 19th century. 25 years old, modern day lynching, ambushed. And so far, no arrest, no charges. Lord willing, that will happen. But if it weren't, that family, the Arbery family, likely would have been tempted, right, to take matters into their own hands. And they should, especially if they're believers. It's not an option. They leave that, A, to Romans 13, 4, the governing authorities. But if the governing authorities blow it, at the end of the day, God will repay. Vengeance is his. Justice will be served eventually. God's the one who will right all wrongs. It's not our job. And when we try that, it never goes well anyway. As the proverb goes, before you embark on a journey of revenge, you should first dig two graves. So church, retaliation and revenge are not Christian options. Verse 21 says we are to overcome evil with good. And that word there for overcome, it's a military word. This is war. This is hard. This is sacrifice. That's why Romans 12, 1 kicks us off that way. We are presenting our bodies as a living sacrifice. So first point, we love our enemies by blessing and by not avenging. Second point, then we love each other. And of course, we've seen this many times and we'll see it again here in a couple of weeks. Love is the hallmark of Christian discipleship. And he shows us here three ways to love, sympathy, unity, and humility. So first sympathy, look at Romans 12, 15. He says, rejoice with those who rejoice, weep with those who weep. And this was countercultural in Paul's day as well. The Greco-Roman notion of virtue, the good life, included what they called apatheia. Now we can hear our word apathetic there. It's having, to, having no passions, having no feelings, not getting involved with the care of others. Well, not so in the church. We're different. We're a contrast to Sadie. We do get involved with others. And when we love one another, we enter into their joys and to their sorrows. Loving people care. Selfless people care about others. This really is a good test verse of Romans 12, 9. Genuine love. Do we genuinely, sincerely love each other? Do you ever, do you ever feel jealous when someone you know gets something you want? Or worse, do you ever feel a sense of delight when something bad happens to someone else, we'll crucify that. That is not genuine love. Genuine love, sincere love, rejoices with those who rejoice and weeps with those who weeps. Again, because we're the church, because we're one body. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 26. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. And kids, again, especially kids with siblings, you can practice this. When you, one of your brothers or one of your sisters, they get something that you wanted or maybe they accomplish something that you can't. You know what your response should be? It shouldn't be to get jealous. It should not be to be pouty. It should not be to tear them down. You know what you should do? You should rejoice with them. You should be glad when they are blessed. And when they hurt, weep with them. Enter into their sorrow. You know, the White House, we do a whole lot of wrestling. We got four boys. Karis jumps in with us. And inevitably, there's tears. And so we're trying to train and build a culture. Yeah, we're going to fight. Sometimes it turns, turns rowdy. But as soon as someone's hurt, we want the posture to be an embracing and going, hey, are you okay? What happened? Can I help? Rejoice when others rejoice. Weep when they weep. It's part of being loving. It's being sympathetic. Second way to love is in verse 16, and it's unity. Romans 12, 16. 
live in harmony with one another. I actually don't like that translation. It's a little loose. The King James has it better. It says, be of the same mind toward one another because the words same and the words mind are there in the original. And Paul uses this phrase quite a bit, actually. We saw it a few weeks ago in Philippians 2. If you've got your Bible open, look at Romans 15, verse 1. We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. For Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. For whatever is written in former days was written for our instruction that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures we might have hope. Here's, here's the key right here, verse 5. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live, same phrase, in such harmony. It's actually having the same mind with one another in accord with Christ Jesus. 2 Corinthians 13, finally, brothers, rejoice, aim for restoration, comfort one another, agree with one another. There's that same phrase, have the same mind, have the same mindset, live in peace, and the God of love and peace will be with you. It's really important to the spirit that the church have the same mind, right? In Philippians 2, he says, have the same mind, and then he describes that mind. That mind is putting others before us, valuing others before ourselves and putting their interests before ours. And then he says, this is the mind of Jesus who, though he was in the form of God, he gave it up. He emptied himself so that we might be saved, giving himself for the good of another. So the, main, the same mind is really no different than love. And yet again, we see the importance of the mind. That's why Paul kicked off this whole section like he did in Romans chapter 12. Look at verse 2. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed. How are we changed? How do we grow? By the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what's good and acceptable and perfect. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but think with sober judgment. So the mind is really important. We are to renew it, have the mind of Christ to be unified, to be peaceable, right? Look at 1218. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all, unity and peace. But notice he's got not one qualification, but two qualifications. He says, if possible, and so far as it depends on you, it won't always be possible. Sometimes it'll be out of your control. And so far as it depends on you, Jesus told us in this world, you will have trouble. You will have tribulation. People will hate you because of me, Jesus says. And again, Bible-believing Christians might as well buckle up. We might as well be ready to be out of step with our contemporaries. When the world's upside down, those who are right side up tend to stick out and be unwelcome and called haters and bigots. But when possible, as far as we can do, be at peace, he says, with all. Jesus said, blessed are the peacemakers. We're to be a peaceable people. We love each other and we seek unity. We prioritize unity among one another. And pride is the biggest barrier to unity. And so the third way we can love each other is by being humble. He says that in verse 16. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Humility also was not a virtue at the time. We're countercultural in this regard. It's a fruit of the Spirit. And again, he stressed that, like I just mentioned in Romans chapter 12, verse 3. We ought not to think of ourselves more highly than we should. 
We don't think about ourselves, but we give ourselves away. We put others first. Again, the mind of Christ. So he says, don't be haughty. Don't be proud. Don't be wise in your own estimation. Proverbs chapter 3, trust in the Lord with all your heart. Do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him, and he will make straight your paths. Be not wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord. Turn away from evil. It will be healing to your flesh and refreshment to your bones. So he says, don't be conceited. Be humble. And associate with the humble. Care for the lowly. The Roman world was very hierarchical. The church is not hierarchical. There, the basis of worth and honor and value was based upon class, social status. Not so the church. Here, all are welcome on the same basis. Faith. All you need here is need. So associate with the marginalized, the poor, the needy. It's what we see Jesus doing all throughout the Gospels. We read that the Lord is near to the brokenhearted. He has compassion on the afflicted, and so, so should we. As God has been to us, so we should be to others. So because of the Gospel and the power that it brings, may we be a church increasingly characterized by loving our enemies and loving each other. Let's pray together. God, thank you once again, yet another week, for a reminder of our need for the gospel and your provision of the gospel. These are hard calls for us to obey, but we uh, have the best example we could ever have. And when we fail, we have the best Savior that we could ever imagine. For those who don't know you, Lord, I pray that they'd see they have no chance of loving their enemies or loving others without the grace that you provide. And so those who don't know you, I pray that they would see their need, Lord, that judgment would weigh heavy on them and they would see that they must flee the wrath to come and that only through Jesus Christ and his death on the cross will they escape judgment. Lord, for us, would judgment be a motivation to trust? Would we entrust ourselves to you, especially for those who have been wronged deeply? Would they be able to trust that you will make it right one way or another? You are the judge of all the earth. You will do right. God, work in our hearts to increasingly become a people of love, love of each other, and even love of those who are against us. We need the Spirit to transform us to that end. We ask for your help. In Christ's name, amen.